This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? Today is November 29th, 2022. I am joined by the very wise Mr. Simon Belanger. And I say very wise because we are recording this in the morning. And of course, you're a dad now. So you've been up since like the crack of dawn. <laughs> and, you know, but you're like, oh, I woke up early, did some stretching. This is when Simone goes full like, just remember, because I was in your shoes 10 years ago. Like you go into full advice mode and yeah, I appreciate yeah. it very much. Like, dude, make sure you do your stretching. Oh yeah. Make sure you do it because <laughs> then you'll end up playing like softball or flag football and everything's going to start blowing up when you're in your thirties. That's what happens. <laughs> like this is going to hurt tomorrow. Our beloved men's national team got eliminated from the world cup, but you know what? We got there. We got there. I'm proud of the lads. Good stuff. So when I'm recording this morning from Austin, Texas, this city is great. Everyone calls it a town, but obviously it's a city. This town is great. I'm having a good time here. It's a cool place. Have you been? No, I've not been. I came back from the U.S. from Syracuse, which, you know, has its cachet too, but uh, probably... (laughs) Yeah, it's probably not the reputation of Austin (laughs) and much smaller. But yeah, I've heard some pretty cool things over there as well. It's funny. I'm doing like, you know, I'm watching a YouTube video. It's like the 10 things you must know before visiting Austin, Texas. Because I'm like, okay, I'm here for a few days before work starts and I want to just check it out. And it's like, yeah, make sure you rent these bikes. We don't recommend getting a car because the traffic is like one of the worst in all the cities in America. And I like... After being here, I like laughed in Toronto voice. I'm like, what do you mean? It's not gridlocked on every corner. (laughs) This is amazing. Like, (laughs) I like laughed in Toronto. And so that that I'm liking this place, man. All right. We, this was not going to be in the news, but you know, breaking news this morning. What just happened? Yeah. Just a good thing. I woke up early to stretch because I was able to see uh, (laughs) that Royal Bank will be buying HSBC's Canadian unit for a cool 13.5 Canadian dollars, 13.5 billion. Sorry. That would be uh, quite the steal if it was uh, $13. (laughs) The deal. Yeah. We just bought HSBC for 13 bucks. Yeah. So 13.5 billion. The deal will be a cash deal and will allow RBC to expand its business down Canada's west coast. I didn't realize that I guess they don't have that much exposure. I wasn't aware of that personally because RBCs are just everywhere in Ontario, right? Every corner, basically. The deal is expected to close in the end of 2023 and will give RBC 130 more branches, including 45 in BC. And for additional context for people who want to wrap their head around how large of an acquisition this is, well, HSBC's Canada had $134 billion in assets as of September 30th, which is slightly more than a third of National Bank's asset. So a pretty significant acquisition. Obviously, there's always a caveat of it has to go through regulatory approval. But yeah, definitely a substantial acquisition here. Yeah, just that headline number 13.5 billion very interesting so they had 134 billion in assets at the so that would be end of Q3 
Yeah, this is substantial. 130 more branches, like you said, almost half and maybe a third in British Columbia. Very cool. I mean, yeah, I don't see HSBC bank branches ever, like personally. And so I guess they're just scattered throughout the rest of Canada. Yeah, I think I can, I recall one in Ottawa. I think downtown Ottawa, I think there is one, but that's about it. And it's in this like big high rise, probably not to the norms of Toronto, but this big high rise that's full of kind of trade offices from different countries. So it would make sense that they they have a presence there. Right. Have you noticed when you get off a plane anywhere in the world, the walkways from the plane to the terminal, the bridges are always just... Floor to ceiling and advertising in HSBC. Yeah, I know. They, Have you ever noticed yeah, that? Yeah, I've noticed that. They're <laughs> pretty international in terms of banks. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know the reason why they're selling. Maybe they want to kind of lean up their operations. I have no idea, but big deal for RBC. Let's hit one more piece of news that I thought was quite interesting. And yeah, well, let me not just steal the show, but have you seen when Toby posts the CEO of Shopify that link that shows all the transactions happening on Black Friday? They do it every year and it shows a globe and it shows this like 3D globe and you can go around and it pulses every time there is a sale in that geography on Shopify in real time. And it is mesmerizing to watch. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that, but it must be uh, flashing quite a bit just based on the number <laughs> that <laughs> they released. flashing yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, so Shopify said that retail sales hit a record on Black Friday. They said that sales by their merchants on its system set a new record. Sales rose to $3.36 billion, a 17% increase compared to last year. They said that at its peak, merchants were doing 3.5 million USD in sales per minute. So that must have been flashing quite a bit at the peak. And it's really impressive, in my opinion, because even if you factor in higher inflation, it's probably still an increase of around 10% compared to last year. So that's pretty impressive. They also provided some other interesting Black Friday information in their press release. The top performing countries, for example, were the US, the UK and Canada, 15% of orders were cross-border and 27% growth in their point-of-sales sales. So the point-of-sales system, sorry, sales is really interesting because that's what we've been hammering for a long time regarding Lightspeed is that there is competition from large players in the space and that's a really good example of it so that's why i mean i've always been a bit reluctant for light speed and let's be honest shopify has way deeper pockets here square as well and there's other big players in the space too yeah the shop pay and right like it's just so easy to integrate and use when you already have that distribution scale advantage so no i'm with you i mean it's amazing right like i have two thoughts here one black friday is like the most genius idea from retail marketers in history, which is just like, okay, it's the end of November. People know they need to start buying stuff for the holidays in December. This is right about when they have saved some money because nothing really major has happened. It's the end of summer and boom, let's hit him with a bunch of deals and just try to just rake as much in terms of GMV as possible because we're going to hit him all through December as well. And then don't you worry, 
Boxing Day, we'll hit him again. Like it's it's just brilliant marketing. And then, you know, Black Friday turns into Cyber Monday. And, you know, now there's there's going to be something on Tuesday at this point, but it's really brilliant. And then my second thought here is what a weird air quotes recession. What a strange phenomenon. And of course, Shopify's GMV is not a perfect proxy for the economy. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but everywhere you look, especially in the third quarter, results from these large public companies was cautious guidance. And then on the call, they're like puff out their chest and it's like, yeah, bro, to be honest, our numbers are are amazing. And so it's a weird dichotomy between you know what they're saying and what the results are and then what they later say in the call which is like visa mastercard shopify you know large retailers just being like hey we're not seeing it yet but that doesn't mean we won't see it in the future i just feel like this has been a broken record for three quarters in a row now yeah yeah i mean it's hard to say exactly at this point right i think there are signs it's kind of sporadic right it's more anecdotal i would say i think as a general rule it's better than expected i would say like i would tend to agree with you but there are still kind of cracks right in the foundation let's say totally and i'm thinking here we talk remember when i did whirlpool a few weeks ago not a name we looked at often and i thought the appliance company the appliance company so that one was really starting to slow down so there are certain areas but clearly shopify hasn't been impacted too much about that it'll be interesting especially after the next quarter when you have the big holiday season how all the retailers do i think we'll we'll probably have to do some retail focus shows for a little bit yeah no for sure and you're right it's gonna be a continual litmus test each quarter being like, has it happened yet? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Has it happened yet? And Whirlpool is an interesting one too, where it's like you have so much exposure from the housing market as well in terms of like new builds and, and stuff like that. But very cool. Keep it up, Shopify. I mean, at the end of the day, they have a great product and they're going to continue to grow. There was some pulled forward growth, but they're going to continue to grow. And at the end of the day, these stores are very sticky. Let's move on to a Canadian name. Another one here, Q2 fiscal 2023 for Alimentation Couchetard. Now, Simon, as per usual, I'm going to need you to repeat that in that beautiful French-Canadian accent for me. Yeah, Alimentation. Sorry, I'm having trouble even too this morning. It's it's pretty early. It's early, man. It's all good. Alimentation Couchetard, they reported the other Q2 earnings. Thank you for just saying that so so much more eloquently for us here on the pod. Now, as most of you know, well, I don't know about most, many of you know, I just owned ETFs and chilled for many years when I started my investing journey. I didn't own pretty much any individual securities for many years. And by the way, that's still a absolutely great way to go for a majority of people. And if I never felt like looking at my portfolio and chilling on the beach for the next 20 years, I'd be happy to throw it in a global equity ETF and literally do nothing for a couple decades. But Kushtar was one of the first stocks I ever bought at around 30 bucks, but split adjusted. So if you're looking at today's price, we're talking about like 15 bucks. And for those forgetting or, or need a reminder, this is ticker ATD. Dot to on the Toronto Stock Exchange. They only trade on the TSX, and you know it's a forty plus billion in market cap. What is the market cap? Uh, Sixty three. Uh, 
Holy smokes. Okay, so yeah, it's one of the largest companies here in Canada. $63 billion in market cap. Now, it was one of the best investments I ever made. I sold it at like 45 bucks ish And so on a time frame basis, I made an unbelievable return because that didn't take very long for it to triple. You know, one of my worst mistakes is that I ever sold the freaking thing. And so, you know, when I entered the, the business, I was like, my main thesis is pretty simple. It's like the quality of the business, the management team, Elaine Bouchard, put him on the Mount Rushmore of Canadian business people, is trading just way too cheap. So maybe I can ride some multiple expansion out of this too. And there are so many great stories out of Quebec, and this is certainly one of them. Now, what an idiot I am for selling it. But it, hey, in hindsight, it, it's 2020. I saw the multiple expand. I saw it grow. The thesis was right. And I wrote out what I thought would be most of the valuation multiple expansion. But it's a reminder to myself, like, you know, in my investing journal, is never doubt absolute killers like Elaine Bouchard. Like, this guy's got that dog in him, you know? Like, these people that just have decades of being supreme like all-star capital allocators, you know, like you're assembling a team for the all-star game to just manage money and, and allocate capital in their business and, and understand the business perfectly operationally. Stories of, you know, him traveling across North America and just going to every location one by one by one and making sure they're all perfect. And so, you know, it's a mental reminder to myself that you got to let those winners run as when it's run by you know, the Mount Rushmore of, of capital allocators. All right, now let's talk about the earnings. Net earnings grew a whopping 21% year over year. They've bought back stock at a nice pace, nearly 900 million in share buybacks in the first half of their fiscal so far. And they have continually wrote down some impairments on Fire and Flower, which is a recurring theme for these, these companies that have large stakes in cannabis retailers. But, you know, this is not significant relatively for the business. And I still think if there's someone that needs to have some exposure or an octopus tentacles out there in the world for retail of cannabis and have that on their radar, it's Kushtar. Like their network just makes a lot of sense to at least experiment with this. Revenue grew to 16.8 billion and 18.7% increase year over year. They raised the dividends, you know, 27%. That is a substantial increase for dividend growth investors. They continue to be acquisitive. Looking forward now, there are a lot of material needle moving acquisition targets out there that, that are being looked at here domestically and in North America and in Europe. Any comments here before I go through some of their fundamentals on a longer view? I just felt like there was some more time needed dedicated to Kushtar this morning because we don't, I mean, we obviously talk about them, but not enough for how well this story has performed. No, I was just wondering if you read anything about like margins being impacted due to inflation. I thought I saw like I, I just read the headline. So I thought I saw something about that. Yeah, there. I mean, for sure. And there's also like a lot to consider just on a macro perspective from fuel and stuff as well. Now, I'd have to look here. I didn't write down notes, but like any of these companies are seeing margin pressure for sure. That being said, like they do have a lot of pricing power and, you know, from an overhead staff perspective, it's a pretty lean operation in the grand scheme of things when you consider how many locations they have. 
So, I mean, overall, EPS grew 21%, like net earnings per share, per dilute share. So, it can't be affecting them that much, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, But later in the episode, I can try to look up the operating margin. Now, if you look on a long time horizon here, they have really, really got it done from a capital efficiency perspective, from a growth perspective. And look at the dividend. The dividend on a three-year is growing at more than a 20% year-over-year clip. On a longer basis, you're looking at around 17 18% hikes consistently annualized. And growing the top line at over 10% annually, they had obviously a, a slight blip in 2020, but nothing... Not as much as I would have expected. And so, you know, lots of cash here on the balance sheet to do some large moving, needle moving type acquisition, I think, over the next year. And yeah, today the the business has over 14,000 locations. The long-term kind of question mark hanging over its head is, what does this business look like with combustion vehicles, a thing of the past? That's the question mark. And I know they've done all of these experiments in Norway with electric vehicle charging. And they're seeing like, you know, good basket sizes on the the convenience stores because, you know, you got to post up for 15, 20 minutes while your car charges, you know, stop in, get a coffee, get a snack. I get that. But the traffic will not be the same in those stores. Like you can't convince me at all that the traffic will be the same as much as you know the investor relations site they they do their best to try to calm that nerve this is the long term question mark hanging over the business's head yeah yeah and i think look depends where you live right if you live in a big city you don't have a car chances are you're going you know to buy stuff yeah. if you have a location near your place just because it's convenient, right? But for me... They do call it a convenience store. That's it. That's it. In French, it's dépanneur, which is... It's not really a literal... To, <laughs> it's not literally what, a literal... What does that translate to? It's more like, you know, it kind of helps you out, I would say, when like... okay. Yeah, Dipan, I guess. A helping hand. Yeah, helping hand, basically. (laughs) When you're in need for some M&Ms and ice cream. Yeah, that's it. And for me, I probably would agree with you, like from a personal perspective, as I would rarely ever go to a convenience store unless it's car related and I need to go put gas in. And then I may buy some overpriced water or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some like $7 Red Bull. Yeah, the whole thing, you know. So that's the big question mark. And I guess back to my previous point is never doubt a management team who's just been so good and able to to kind of see ahead of that stuff. And and they've done lots of experiments, like I said, in, in Europe and saw great results, but it's just not enough. It's just not a big enough sample size to really have a lot of confidence that that can be rolled out in North America because it's just just completely different ecosystems. Yeah, and the reality is it's a potential like, you know, thesis changing business model like in terms of what will happen, right? They've always operated under the assumption that there's, you know, cars that take gas and that's a big, you know, boost for their sales because just like people like me go there and then end up doing purchases. So having that change or being impacted, it's kind of, you know, I know they have a good track record, but at the same time, this is like, they've not seen that before. Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's just funny because it's because of that thesis, because of that narrative, 
for the past five to 10 years, it just traded at such a discount. Like it's been historically so cheap. And I think that over the last three-ish years, people have just been like, yeah, but like, look at the business. Like, look how it's performing. Look at the, look at the long-term EPS growth. Look at them not only grow, but reward shareholders to do div hikes, buy back a lot of stock. And, and the shares have performed exceptional as, as a result of that and caught some multiple expansion. So we'll see what the next 10 years looks like because it's going to be different. And I think they have some stuff to figure out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now moving on to some more news here. So some more fallout from the FTX scandal and bankruptcy, which was probably inevitable at this point. Everyone thought this would be happening and it did happen. So BlockFi files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So they announced that yesterday. We're recording on Tuesday here. Again, it's another domino effect of the FTX scandal and we're seeing some contagion here. But this one was probably starting back in June. BlockFi, for those not aware, was a crypto lending platform, a centralized one, which was facing major issues in June after the fall of the crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital that they had exposure to. But it was issued a lifeline by FTX in the form of a $250 million credit facility, which was then increased to $400 million. And then with FTX filing for bankruptcy, it was really on the wall, like I said. And it's interesting because some of its creditors include, and these are unsecured creditors, include FTX US and the SEC. I'm assuming the SEC was relating to a lawsuit that was settled with them for $100 million. And the amount that's still outstanding is $30 million. I'm not 100% sure for that, but that would logically to me be the case. Yeah. It's so funny when I hear <laughs> a now defunct bankrupt hedge fund was given a lifeline from now a defunct bankrupt exchange, which is causing contagion of now a defunct bankrupt BlockFi. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's like, you know, everyone who was against this in the past two years are just like, I told you so, man, I told you so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And rightfully so. I mean, you know, do your victory lap, do your dance, because this is an absolute mess. Yeah, and personally, I, I only, I tried BlockFi just with a tiny amount because I wanted to try one of those centralized kind of yielding service just to see how it was. Right. So I used like less than 5% of what I had in Bitcoin just to try it out. And I kept it on there for just a couple of months and withdrew it like a year and a half ago, way before all of this stuff happened. It just, I did not feel comfortable with another company controlling my Bitcoin. I'd prefer to just have it in cold storage. So a lot of people are obviously realizing that now, including some pretty wealthy ones, that yeah. if you're going to own it, you better own your keys. But yeah, I think that's uh, definitely a reminder, even for people like me that didn't have anything on it. I just tried it out just to see how it worked. But it's centralized. It wasn't regulated or very little. So this kind of stuff happens. I remember listening to a podcast about, I think it was with one of the founders of BlockFi, and they were kind of just explaining, you know, just basically it was a, an hour long sales pitch. And the whole time I'm in my car, I think I was like driving to go see my parents and, you know, the podcast was on, you know, I listened start to finish during the drive. And the whole time, you know, hands on the wheel, someone I had this face on, just like, 
eyebrows really low and just confused, like head tilt, like, huh? Like the whole time I just had that confused look on my face because it sounded like, hmm, this sounds really cool and I could see the the appeal and I could see why they're getting so much traction because it sounds amazing. How on earth is this going to like be sustainable? Like the math, like the you know, the meme of all the numbers going around while I drive the car on the highway and on the 401 in Ontario was just WTF. This makes absolutely no sense to my brain. And I'm glad I had a lot of caution. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, it sounds too good. It might be too good to be true. And now uh, I guess uh, we'll move on. I thought it was a segment for you, but it's still me here. So summer news release. <laughs> I think I just missed yeah, the gap there. That's okay. You know what? My excuse is I'm so full on Texan barbecue brisket. You know, brains are operating a little, little low here. Let's head into Dollar Tree, which, by the way, I checked just like yesterday because they, I mean, they reported earnings recently. Yeah. I didn't realize this thing had compounded like the way it has at dollar stores just in general, like Dollarama here in Canada too. Dude, they're like absolute beasts. Yeah, they've done they've done pretty well. And I was just curious because first, there's not that many earnings right now going on. There's tons of like junior miners, but we don't have a lot of interest <laughs> in that. But, you know, some and of the dollar stores have 48 quarters per year because Dollarama reports weekly at this point. Yeah, exactly. Every, and every business week. <laughs> <laughs> and this one, Dollar Tree, I think it's just interesting just to have an idea of how they're doing. And we know Dollarama has been doing really well, like you just mentioned. And I wanted to see if it was also the case down south with their actual numbers, right? And I think it was pretty good overall. I can't exactly recall what Dollarama reported in their latest quarter, but they'll probably report. I think it's in the next month or so. They're always a bit after earnings season. Now, net sales increased 8.1% to just shy of $7 billion. Same store sales for their Dollar Tree segment was up 8.6%, family dollar segment went up 4.1%, and their enterprise segment was up 6.5%. And I kind of just dabbled on their website, and they do have different kind of dollar trees. So their flagship in air quote dollar tree, they don't sell things above a dollar twenty-five. Whereas some of their other type of stores they'll have like kind of two, three, up to five dollars. And what they'll do to keep it under a dollar twenty-five is I think they've been known to sell things like single toilet paper rolls and stuff like that. To like oh, reduce that's the so size. Greasy. Yeah, to reduce the size and make it more affordable, I guess. I guess shrinkflation would be it, but yeah. operating income here increased 22.8% to $381 million. Operating income, their margin improved 70 basis point to 5.5%. Diluted earnings per share increased 25% to $1.20. And for the first nine months of the year, they actually were free cash flow negative by $187 million versus free cash flow positive for 268 last year during the same period. They had some funky items, like I think it's more like one-time type of cash kind of charges here. So I don't think it's anything to be alarmed of, but I think overall pretty good. And they have a lot of stores. I think they have... I don't know if I read that correctly, but I think it's like close to 16,000. I don't know if I read it correctly. It seems like too much. They had like kind of eight for the Dollar Tree and then another eight for the Family Dollar. So 
I don't know if I read it correctly. It seemed like a lot, but <laughs> if it is, I mean, good for that. <laughs> I think that sounds right, reasonably. What I can do here is just check on, on Stratosphere because we have their KPIs. Oh, okay. We just launched, by the way, it was a late night for us because we ported over the platform at midnight last night. And, you know, that never goes super smooth. Oh, great. I'm not logged in. So it's just, I, it's just oh, blurred yeah. out. I'm like, well, dude, the founder of the company is blurred out from his own thing. My right password's now. not saved anymore. I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to reset it. I don't remember. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's here right. on the podcast, I'm on my own, own site and just locked out. That's great. Let me, let me sign up here. But before we do that, I mean, this is a good point too, right? Because you said, 187 million free cash flow negative. This is not typically a company that produces negative free cash flow. And you look at the operating income up 22% to 381 million. It's just a reminder accounting wise. Don't panic if you see a free cash flow negative quarter for a historically profitable quarter. Look into the line item, see what it is. You said like a one-time cash expense. What's going to be a lot more stable is operating income or EBIT or EBITDA. Just historically, if you're trying to find long-term profitability trends, there's going to be a lot more variance in free cash flow than something like EBIT or operating income. So just a quick tip there if you're if you're doing some financial research. Yeah, and I would probably add to that and say like what I like to do is usually when I see something that's a bit out of whack or a number when I'm expecting like to see free cash flow positive in this situation, I'll look for a potential big number too in the cash flow from operations, for example. So that's how I'll spot it. Oftentimes you'll see some footnotes that will give you more information on that. So that's a good way to understand what it was even if there isn't for that specific item you can usually if you're not sure what the lingo means just google it right and then you'll find something like investopedia or something like that that will explain to you in detail what these things mean so there is ways right that to learn as you go because i don't know about you i did some accounting classes but you know there's a lot of terms i would see that i never learned in my classes or it's just slightly you know it means what i learned but in a, it's just spelled slightly differently right right i just looked here we got up to the latest quarter Family dollar, oh, because there's family dollar and Dollar Tree as yeah, part of the uh, the ecosystem, and they weirdly have a similar amount of stores at seventy five hundred and okay. seventy seven hundred. So each, it was right, yeah. Over fifteen thousand total ending store count for them, and they operate sixty four point six million square feet of. Oh no, total that was just for Dollar Tree. Total is one hundred and twenty one million square feet across the fleet. So. Wow, that's crazy. That means that Dollarama creates at crazy high valuation compared to them. Like Dollarama oh, totally, has like totally. 10 times less stores, something like that than them. And their valuation is probably, you know, I don't know, like 20% less in terms of, I, I mean, their value in terms of market cap is about 20, yeah. 25% less. So there's a really big discrepancy there. That's why I wasn't, I was seeing those numbers and I checked all Rama and I'm like, oh my God, am I like, this can't be right, but I guess it is. Well, the margin profile is quite yeah. different. Mm -hmm. It's like so much competition for dollar stores in the US, whereas yeah. Dollarama is just kind of like, it used to be really fragmented and no, they're just kind of the only game in town, minus a few like small town general stores that you'll find in like rural Canada. 
it's just been Dollarama. So yeah, and I guess margin if, profile and pricing power are very different. Yeah, and if you're an investor too and you want to stick to Canada, it's your only option, right, for capital too. So that's maybe has something to do with it as well. Yeah, it's hard to really say. All right, let's move on to Autodesk, ticker ADSK. When I think of Durable, I think of Autodesk, and it's a company we talk about, I should, I should say I talk about every quarter, since they generally report later, and I own it in my personal portfolio, and I'm an engineer, and I like to flex that on everyone on the podcast. So that's why it comes up on the show. But before we get into the earnings, it's just, it's a very durable business in my mind, and every moat needs to be monitored. Right. There very well could be some competitors that come. You're laughing with some crazy yeah, smirk. I right know now. it's not gonna be great if you're giving the <laughs> <laughs> you're giving like, oh, this is great. They have a strong moment. I'm like, oh boy, the earnings wasn't good there. <laughs> they were fine. They were fine. I think they were fine. And the market didn't like it, but I don't care about the market. Uh. <laughs> no, it's more a teaching points, you won't. Yeah. No, no, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> the mode needs to be wandered, and there's going to definitely become competitors in, in tech over time, and I'm going to continue to monitor this, this thesis. But today's landscape, it's a roundabout me way of me saying, in today's landscape, in architecture, engineering, and construction, it is just so entrenched. And the reason I actually brought this up, counter to what you would have thought, is the moat and switching costs of SaaS in general was overstated in general over the past two to three years. You saw it in the multiples and you saw it now in like, you know, oh, wow, they can't just grow in any economy. And so the reason I bring this up is because Autodesk and their main flagship products feels like an anomaly in this rule because everything that is being built with exciting modeling and visualization tools in the stack for AEC, which is architecture, engineering, and construction. They're often fed by AutoCAD and Revit properties, which are Autodesk properties. And so it, it feels like it's become the rails of this vertical in technology. And it is demonstrated by their sustained 90% plus gross margins. So very interesting. Now, as for the business. They don't report total subscriptions on every quarter, but in their Q4, you go on stressfree.io, you can track the subscriptions over time on a long view. And they're tracking right now Q4, do some quick extrapolation. Don't have the number yet until the fourth quarter, but we're looking at around six and a half million total subscriptions on the SaaS. Total revenue increased 14% year over year to 1.2 billion and total billings upon their services up, up 16%. Operating income of 256 million, which was up 20%. AutoCAD is still growing double digits somehow. And it was hitting like 20 plus percent on the top line. So this is a slight deceleration. You know, this and some weaker-ish guidance is probably what sent the stock down. But AutoCAD might be the Tom Brady of software. You know, this is 40 years later, they're like, yeah, I'm still good. I'm still putting up numbers. So AutoCAD is, is the Tom Brady of software. Now moving forward, they're guiding for 1.9 to 2 billion. It's called 2 billion in free cash flow for the full year. Now stock-based compensation is something to consider for sure. But I think it's a bit overblown on Autodesk from investors when I see discussion online in terms of dilution. Because over the past 10 years, yeah, they've issued lots of stock-based compensation. 
But you actually have a decrease in shares outstanding every year, net, net. And so it's not material decrease in shares, but it's not like stock-based compensation is being diluted AF like so many of software companies we've seen over the past, you know, decade or so. Yeah. No, no, I agree with you here. Like, you know the name better. It sounds like it's probably more short-term and the long-term thesis uh, should be good, but not too much more to add here. I actually don't even know, like, what the reaction... It's done basically flat since, like, the spring. It's just kind of in a lull, which is not bad considering everything else in high multiple SaaS has been Mm -hmm. literally taking to the woodshed these more high durable long term staying power names have not been decimated like the new high flyers that have made a name for themselves only recently and you're seeing that not only stock price but also in their numbers yeah exactly cuz if you look at some some of the other names in saas right we know <laughs> some in canada too they've just been smashed like 80 90% is not unusual and not that they have terrible businesses but it's probably not as good as people thought it would be or at the hype of the you know low interest rates and people looking for growth at any cost yeah, yeah. exactly let's use an example like atlassian and this is anecdotal evidence here but atlassian you're familiar i think they're australian it's trello and jira the ticker is team so atlassian is now down let's see atlassian stocks now down 72.4 percent from the peak And this is a software company that's in like work enterprise management, you know, team management software, like task management software with Jira and Trello, very popular products growing extremely fast in unbelievable top line growth, good management team, just sleek little products. And I thought this would be a sticky business generally, right? You'd think, bro, we switch from an Atlassian property to a competitor property like three weeks ago with Stratosphere, like with my company, we did a migration. And this was led by our development team because they thought that there was a better product out there that better integrated with GitHub and their tech stack. So I'm like, sure, whatever you guys want to do, go for it. Bro, it took us like an hour to migrate everything. Like that is not sticky enough. Like that did not cause us nearly enough pain to not churn. And so the staying power and switching costs of some of these tech names, I overblew them. The market clearly overblew them. And yeah, it literally took us one hour. So I'm like, that's way too easy. Yeah, definitely. Now we'll move on to a last name here, which I guess is pretty kind of apropos with the news, right? So Pinduoduo, which is a Chinese online platform, just released its result. I say where it's kind of been in the news is more, you know, the protests that are happening in China right now with the COVID lockdowns. For those not aware, Pinduoduo does business primarily in China in the agriculture space. So it's an e-commerce platform that connects small firmers with consumers they've expanded their product offering over time but that's still their primary business take these results with a grain of salt as always since it's a Chinese social shopping have i been completely wrong yeah i mean i wasn't sure i thought it was just kind of general e-commerce and then i kind of looked and they're no they seem to be yeah they kind of do it i guess on a bit more kind of social basis but it's really connecting like small farmers with consumers that's their their main thing 
Okay, so they, it looks like they have a couple of different verticals they do. I've always known it as like the social shopping thing, but I also have no idea. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, like I said, I was looking for names and this one I figured it'd be interesting just because of what's been happening in China. It is listed as PDD, as an ADR in the US. Now, total revenues were up 65% in Yuan. Their total revenues converted to USD were just shy of $5 billion in the quarter. Their main category for... The revenues is online marketing services that was up 58%. It represents about 80% of the revenues. Transaction services revenues were up 102%. That's the remaining 20% of their revenues, although they have a very tiny, tiny portion. That's merchandise sale, which is up 31%, but it's literally peanuts compared to the other two. Like if you calculate it, I believe it's less than 1%. Operating profits was up 388% compared to last year. Of course, looking at their yuan profits here, net income was up 270 77%. If you convert that to USD, it's 1.5 billion USD. So really interesting at face value. But again, you know, when it comes to Chinese companies, you have to take their results with a grain of salt, you know, assuming they are all accurate. This has been a really interesting play, a strong growth. And I was looking at just the stock and how it's been doing, and it's still trading at a pretty rich valuation, in my opinion, for a Chinese company. But uh, I guess people are willing to pay for that for growth. I mean, it's not trading at 20 excels or anything like that. I think it's trading more around, you know, probably 5x, but still relatively expensive. But I mean, I guess there could be some worse plays in China right now. I just looked, the trades at just under six times sales. And 30 times earnings. I'm shocked at these numbers. Like these, these sound really good. And I, I guess because they're still in lockdown and this is an e-commerce platform. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, when you're still in lockdown, you saw the numbers. They are putting up numbers. E-commerce is putting up numbers in lockdown. So if they're still going, they're still riding those tailwinds. I don't understand what is going on over there. Like I see some videos of just the protests and, and the facilities they're putting up to keep people really quarantined. Dude, what? What? Know, like, yeah. what is happening? It's terrible. I feel very bad for the people who live there. It, it's cruel is what it is. Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy that uh, we're still seeing that, what, like almost three years after the pandemic yeah. started. And I know not to get in the whole vaccine thing, but they came out, I think, last night while we were sleeping and saying that, you know, they were imploring local leaders to not put up too intense of restrictions and encouraging people to get vaccinated, especially the elderly. But apparently their vaccines have not been as effective as the ones that are available in North America and Europe because China has been pushing for their own vaccine as well. So it's kind of funny. There's these protests. It's going to take a while, in my opinion, for the Chinese government to make an about phase because Xi Jinping has made it basically you know his mission for covid zero at this point so it's gonna it's basically him admitting he was wrong and dictators don't usually like to do that no no they certainly don't well that does it for the episode guys man i'm gonna go eat some more delicious food in this is wonderful also calling it a town like like the locals do <laughs> and start calling it a town and Dude, it's so funny when I saw the the traffic thing because it's just so chill. I'm like, 
what do you mean? There's not 40 people honking at me as I cross the street. Like, this is great. (laughs) I love it. Like, I'm moving here. It's also going to be like nearly 30 degrees today. So let's go, man. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, just just letting you know. Do you like my background right now? Like, this, this hotel is unbelievable, but it looks like I'm trapped in the 20s right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean with the decor. <laughs> oh, Leroy's making an appearance. Yeah, now. Leroy. Leroy agrees. Uh, it looks no. old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leroy, we'll probably Leroy can't agrees. keep it. This one's well placed. End of the episode. Yeah, yeah, no problem. To uh, yeah, just trash at the end here. Anyway, yeah. thanks so much for listening to the show. Here, we really appreciate you. We did launch our new platform on stratosphere.io last night. And so it is available today. It is that elusive November 29th date today that we've been talking about. So go ahead and check it out. I do think it is now officially the best free fundamental research platform on the internet. Like before, I would, you know, I would say that, but there was so many things that I thought, oh, this could be so much better. And now it feels so much better. So that's a stratosphere.io. It's free to use like 10 years of financial statements. If you want to get up to 35 years now, we have a paid plan for that. Also, every single global stock is now on the platform. So it's not just North America anymore. We have international listings with 40,000 plus securities on here. So you won't be limited just to North American names as well. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.